0: This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. On this week's PreserveCast, we're diving deep into the technology of preservation with Greg Gaylor and Taryn Williams about their roles at the Association for Preservation Technology International. We're talking about how preservationists keep up with changing technology and how those trends, tools and the science of buildings is helping keep our historic structures standing. And we'll discuss how you can get involved and learn more about the science behind preservation. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're excited to be talking with two folks. We have on two guests today, Greg Gaylor and Taryn Williams. Greg and Taryn are both going to talk about their roles with uh, the Association for Preservation Technology. Um, APT, and uh, we're going to be talking all about what APT and APTI and all these different things, how it all comes together, what it is that they do, and why you should know more about it. Um, Greg is the executive director of APT, and Taryn is the president of the board of APT um, and is also uh, an accomplished senior project manager at Simpson, Gumperts, and Heger, Um, And we're going to be talking about what that is and and how they both got into this line of work. Um, But before we get there, uh, maybe we'll start there, which is uh, their path to preservation and to this organization. Um, So maybe we'll start with uh, Taryn. Um, Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up and uh, what was your first job in the field? What what sparked all this interest and how did you get into it?
1: Yeah, thanks, Nick. I grew up in upstate New York, just north of Albany, and I went to school at Cornell University for both my undergraduate program in civil engineering and my graduate program also in civil engineering. And the way I got into preservation was I had a summer internship in Princeton, New Jersey, in between undergrad and grad school. And I worked for an engineering company and I would take the train to New York quite a bit uh, to do condition surveys of buildings owned by Columbia University. They were masonry buildings. And as I was doing that work, I started to become interested in historic preservation in older buildings and in how we how we work with them. So after that internship, when I went back to grad school at Cornell, I signed up for a couple of courses in the architecture school in the Department of um. Planning, We took a couple of preservation courses and really learned about preservation theory and um, some materials conservation methods. One of the the highlights of that experience is that my professor um, in one of those preservation courses is now on my board of directors, which is absolutely delightful.
0: And so where was your first job in the field?
1: So after graduate school, uh, I moved to San Francisco to start my first job with a structural engineering firm doing earthquake engineering. And after a couple of years there, it was a great experience, but I wasn't doing a whole lot of preservation, which I was really interested in. And so I moved over to my current firm at Simpson Up Tager and started working with an expert in the field who did a lot of preservation work. And she taught me everything I know about preservation practice. And so that was 2003. And I've been doing that work ever since.
0: And so, uh, SGH Engineering, uh, say sort of jokingly in the interest of full disclosure, we at Preservation Maryland, which Powers PreserveCast has had a long and and really positive relationship with them and Uh, They're really one of the leaders in the field when it comes to preservation and saving buildings that others think are too far gone like that's sort of like I always sort of joke that that's like their thing we bring them in when someone's like no that can't be saved and I'm like well SGH probably can figure it out and so they have we have saved things that have been damaged by floods things that have been hit by cars. Uh, you name it, somehow they come up with some crazy strategy. Um, and with the right amount of money, you can save almost anything. Isn't that right?
1: <laughs> That's right.
0: Um, so uh, Greg is a uh, a repeat here. We've had him on before. And actually, last time we talked to him, he was back in Boston, and we were talking about modernism, I think it was, or defensive brutalism. Uh, we put him on the hot seat and made him defend the indefensible. Um, he's good at that. But um, so... <laughs> But now he's he's got this great new gig, not not even that new anymore, but uh, with APTI, the Association for Preservation Technology International. And we'll talk about what all that means. But, um, Greg, remind people where you grew up and what was sort of your your path into this interesting world of preservation.
2: Sure. Yeah, I was born in Boston, grew up in an adjacent suburb and. Um, And actually, in hindsight, the seeds in my interest were planted way back in junior high, where I had a teacher that was really smart and said, get your nose out of the textbook, go hop on your bikes. We didn't have licenses at that point and go look at some stuff. So we took some field trips, but also I look at some really interesting historic sites, including some old industrial sites. So that kind of got planted in the back of my head. But as an undergrad, I thought I wanted to major in physics and math. Um, and, uh, that was fine until the five hour problems that's really kind of got to me, uh, and, uh, realizing that someone had figured out all those solutions hundreds of years before me. Uh, and I took a class with a guy named Pat Malone, who was since retired from Brown, but uh, a leader in the fields of industrial history and industrial archaeology. And I took a class in the history of the built environment. Uh, and suddenly I realized that I could actually connect my interest in science and math with a long uh, standing his, uh, love of history. Um, and I ended up doing an undergraduate thesis on 19th century bridge building and its influence on early iron and steel framing. Um, and I found that I could actually do work as a researcher. That uh, undergraduate thesis was actually used by state historic preservation offices throughout New England. And that was far more rewarding than, uh, than problem sets that someone had figured out long before that. Um, so that was really I was bit by the bug then in actually getting out in the field and doing work. So my first job was actually as an undergraduate, I was paid to work with him to develop and complete a survey of historic resources in the Blackstone River Valley National Historic Guard. It was one of the first National Historic Corridors. Um, so, actually working with historic resources of all types out in the field uh, and doing you know background research on them, and then doing some analysis of them. And then my first job out of college was coordinator of industrial history at the Valentine Museum in Richmond, Virginia, uh, where I collected a bunch of. Um, machinery my, my focus was really industrial history history of technology and then before long I
0: was leading a project to convert a 19th century ironworks in Richmond to a new museum so um two interesting and diverse paths into preservation um, but Apt brought you together uh, so Apt is the 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 common denominator here between both of you so maybe since Greg's the executive director at Apt you could tell us what is APT? Well, there's the formal mission of APT, which is
2: to advance appropriate traditional and new technologies to care for, protect, and promote the longevity of the built environment environment, and to cultivate the exchange of knowledge through the international community. But that's quite a mouthful, as many mission statements are. Um, I like to say we support the experts in both the historic and most current methods to take care of and assure the longevity of historic places. Taryn will have her own short summary, but uh, briefly, APT was formed in 1968, jointly between the U.S. and Canada. Uh, we now have members in about 30 countries, 21 chapters, uh, and uh, a full breadth of experience that we can talk about further.
0: And Taryn, I, maybe maybe we'll, we'll move in that direction. How would you describe it as a practitioner? Um, and maybe not just how you would describe it, but what value does it bring to you you know, as somebody who's a practitioner or somebody listening to this is like, oh, well, I do that kind of work. Maybe I should be a member and I'm not. What's that? What's the value add to being a part of all of this?
1: Yeah, what APT does is it provides the best technical resources to practitioners in historic preservation. So those are architects, engineers, materials conservators, professors, contractors, students. APT is the place you come when you need to know the best tools and technology in order to preserve a material or a structure. So we do that in a variety of ways. One of our um, main communication methods is our peer-reviewed journal, the Bulletin, and that comes out three times a year. It's a member benefit, and you can also access it online through JSTOR, which has a host of other scientific journals. But the APT Bulletin is the, the premier technical resource for practitioners in preservation. So being a member of APT gives you access to a network of professionals who are experts in the field. And this is really what APT is all about. We provide technical resources to people who are preserving buildings. And we're really a partner and a resource for people who focus on advocacy, on tax credits, and on policy.
0: So maybe give me an example of that. So for somebody listening who isn't uh, a practitioner of this and is like, thinking to themselves, well, how much does the technology of, you know, historic structures and preserving historic structures, how could it possibly change that much? Now I know, and you guys both know that it does, but for somebody listening who, you know, they, maybe they work in a museum and they work in public history and they're not super familiar with this aspect of it, you know, how, how, give me an example, if you could, of, of like a place where your research has sort of changed the understanding. Is there like a cool example or something you can think of um, that, you know, maybe it was covered in the journal. I don't know if, if Taryn or either of you want to take this, um, but something where you're like, oh, this definitely changed our understanding and we're doing a better job of it now because of this kind of research.
1: Yeah, well, I'll give you an example and I'll ask Greg to expand on it. But one of the recent things that is coming up quite a bit is the issue of codes, building codes for historic buildings, both in the FDC, the International Building Code, which is mostly for new construction, and the IEBC, which is the International Existing Building Code. APT has had a committee on codes and standards for a very long time working to um, understand and improve the codes for handling buildings. And it really impacts um, downtown areas with older buildings that uh, would like to be reused, but a lot of the um, codes appear to be pretty restrictive. And so just recently, we had a um, we had a virtual seminar called Building Codes on Main Street that Greg can talk about a bit more and the, the folks who attended that.
2: Yeah, I mean, codes is, is one example. So when we say, you know, technology, it really runs a huge spectrum. So just in terms of the context, I mean, people in APT involved in everything from the microscopic analysis of mortar and paint through you know giant steel and structural engineering and, and giant stones, uh, and across the historic period from prehistoric to you know mid-century modern and concrete, uh, and uh, technology is pretty broadly defined. So on the codes issue, you know who else is going to get down in the weeds and get excited about building codes than APT people? Most people's eyes roll on the back of their head when you say building codes, but the reality is. That building codes are one of the biggest barriers to building reuse, particularly in the affordable housing realm, and particularly on sort of main streets where you think of, you know, retail first floor and all those unoccupied second and third floors, and the issue that they're not being occupied and could be great affordable housing is often building codes, um, and the building codes is very technical, um, and um, the international existing building code was actually developed uh, with support from from HUD. Um, to reduce barriers to building reuse. But over the past you know, 30 years, layer upon layer of um, increased codes and, and have been added. But with new technologies, for example, there are things called intumescent paints, which can be used to increase fire ratings for materials, um, new types of uh, fire protection systems that can reduce the costs, um, and some other new methodologies. And also the way we analyze buildings Um, in terms of uh, computer analysis and so forth are much more sophisticated and would really allow safe reuse of buildings if the building codes would allow it. Um, So that's one way we're working on trying to get those codes changed. The other thing is there are people at APT who are experts in using the performance-based code, which is within the existing building code really doesn't require changes, but requires people to better understand how to use it. Uh, And that's rather than just Uh, sort of fixed numbers and fixed requirements, you can actually do some testing to demonstrate that your building in its current form performs safely and meets the code. But sadly, many even code officials don't understand how this works. So you need experts to work on it. So that's one example in the codes realm.
0: So I have to, I always have to stop people. And part of my job is to ask questions when um, there's phrases thrown out that I have no clue about that I'm sure listeners have no clue about. What is an intumescent paint, Greg? (laughs) <laughs> yes. It's a great name. I just love throwing
2: it around. It is. Uh, it's a type of paint that's designed when it's exposed to heat. It's its chemistry and physical nature changes to uh, provide. of. Uh, it
0: slows down the ability of heat and flame to reach the surface below it. Fascinating. So it almost turns kind of into a fire barrier when it gets hot. Effectively, yes. And and I, I will
2: note, you know, in case there are certain people at the Park Service listening and we can talk about some of those issues later, um,
0: that it's not applicable in all situations. Sure. Well, yes, we're not we're not providing technical guidance. We're not we never provide uh, accounting or tax uh, uh, accounting right. advice la- or anything like that. We. My lawyer. We, this, appreciates is, the caveat. this is just informational. Um, so speaking of informational. Um, you know, we've talked about sort of the trends and challenges. Sounds like codes is a big thing. I mean, anybody who works in rehab, you know, is 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 familiar with that. You know, it, you know, mentioned sometimes that Preservation Maryland powers this podcast, and you know, we ran into a million issues trying to rehab a log cabin. Actually, SGH worked on that project with us. Um, And trying to take a cabin and make it so that it met modern code, even though someone was living in it um, because of the rehab work that was being done. And it just there were there were moments when we wanted to bang our head against the wall, um, against the log wall. Um, And uh, so but I'm curious, you know, one thing that pops up that people might be familiar with, particularly people who kind of work in this industry or kind of bounce around in preservation, we hear a lot about the Secretary of the Interior Standards, right? So you've got these standards that are established um, that go back almost 50 plus years at this point. And um, some aspects of them are good, some are not so good. And we have buildings that now are eligible for the National Register that were built in, I don't know, 1973. Um, And how are you guys sort of dealing? Are you engaging with Secretary of the Interior Standards? Do you have advocacy pushes on this? Are you sort of thinking through ways that they could be changed? I'm seeing Greg smirk a little bit. This is an audio podcast, so you're not seeing it. Um, but want to let the listeners know. Um, so, you know, what what is the challenge here? I mean, this is this is obviously sort of, uh, you know, a big issue out there. I'm curious where APT is on this. I don't know who wants to take that one. APT
2: has not been
0: specifically engaging this issue in great detail.
2: Um, I was smirking because, you know, you and I know, you know, Nick. You and I talk talk in in, in full disclosure. We are connected through the preservation, uh, the National Preservation Partners Network, and talk on different levels on those kind of issues. Um, APT is not engaged on the on the Secretary of Standards too much. It is politically challenging, and there's, you know. Two camps. There's the, the code, the standards are fine, and it's all about interpretation camp. And there's the yeah, you say that, but you still are giving us challenges interpreting the codes the way we think we need, uh, the standards the way we need to camp. Um, I think for APT, where we see the challenge mostly with code specifically is in modern buildings. So, you know, it, you have to admit, I think anyone would admit that the codes didn't particularly anticipate mid-century modern and concrete um in some of the challenges with those repair and maintenance. Um, so, you know, I think in those types of buildings, there are APT members Who are expert in those fields, and Taryn may want to speak to that and may have some specific examples where there are some challenges with the code with the standards. Um, But it's really about dialogue with the SHPO office. And the people in the Park Service, the people overseeing those standards. And I think that's a place where APT can play a role. We haven't yet and haven't been asked to, but uh, we are having increasing conversations with the Park Service more broadly about our ability to provide some guidance. And I think that's a place where we can provide some expert advice saying, you need to provide more flexibility because, you know, X and Y regarding the materials or changes in materials or new technologies or new materials that have evolved.
0: And that's only going to get more challenging. Yeah, I want to kick it over to Taryn, but it's only going to get more challenging. We were talking in our office a couple of days ago about, you know, in, uh, you know, I guess it's 2030, something built in 1980 is going to be eligible for the National Register. Right. And so. You know, the building materials of 1980 to Greg's point, like the secretary of the interior standards never really envisioned, you know, uh, 1980s mall, uh, you know, the adaptive reuse of that. And I think it's interesting. I I think it's an important point, too, that you guys don't have an official position on it. You're not working on a particular, but that there this 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 idea of dialogue. And I think that that's important in all preservation is like actually just having conversations instead of talking past each other. Um, But I think Greg's point is well made on like having dialogue about interpretation of this. But uh, Taryn, I'm curious how you kind of see this as a practitioner.
1: Yeah, Greg is correct that APT has historically not been involved in advocacy issues in general. And we're just starting to become involved in um, advocating for certain issues on the federal level that have to do with preservation more broadly. So we've we've not yet engaged a lot in this conversation about the Secretary of Interior Standards, but we're certainly aware of the conversation. And the first thing I'll say about the standards is that they are guidelines. They are not law. They are not code. So they are a tool that are used by state historic preservation officers, by tribal historic preservation officers and others in order to make decisions where there are very nuanced situations about retaining building features, preserving buildings, um, upgrading buildings, et cetera. So there is, they're written broadly, and there's a lot of room for interpretation. They were written at a point in time when some materials we have today or some systems we have today didn't exist. And there may be certain situations where they don't quite adequately cover some of what we're coming up against. But I also think that's debatable, and I think about an example of, say, mid-century modern or post-modern buildings with architectural systems that don't have great waterproofing systems. Um, I've looked at many of these, including in post-modern buildings that are now reaching age fifty and qualifying for historic status, and the the cladding systems don't involve a complete waterproofing system behind it, for example, or there are discontinuities in the waterproofing. We talk about how to to preserve these buildings in a way that respects their architectural integrity. The Secretary of Interior Standards prioritizes retaining historic fabric first and foremost, uh, but they also allow for choices of replacing it when need be. And these may be times when we need to replace materials in order to provide more durability to the building and provide an appearance that matches the architectural intent. So there are many kinds of criteria we can look at. When making decisions about how to repair or upgrade buildings, it comes up a lot in mid-century and postmodern structures, particularly with roofing and cladding systems. When it comes to, when it comes to waterproofing, as an example, and I I don't believe that the the standards are terribly restrictive in that, but it it requires interpretation that's probably different than what we're used to. So as you said, Nick, it requires a conversation between. The authority having jurisdiction and the practitioner about the decisions they're making for the project
0: so why don't we take a break here and when we come back we'll talk about a great place where you can have those conversations which is when apt gets together annually and um, we'll do that here on preservecast to talk about other ways you can get engaged with apt um, and we're talking with greg gaylor and taryn williams historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work and there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. In partnership with the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy, the campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP. TTAP's an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAP and how to apply today. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. We're excited to have you back. We're having a great conversation today with uh, two leaders in uh, the Association for Preservation Technology International. Greg Gaylor, their executive director, and Taryn Williams, um, the president of their board. Um, and before we took our break, we were talking about like having these dialogues, having conversations, ways in which APT is shaping the narrative and and sort of doing research on different difficult issues when it comes to dealing with restoring and and historic preservation of buildings from, you know, the 18th century or or earlier uh, internationally to uh, the mid-century modern and and postmodern. And. I, I sort of led uh, before we took the break with this idea that um, there's a great place where you can have all these conversations and um, at at the, the risk of uh, being a little rude, you can nerd out with uh, your fellow uh, building scientist people and preservationists. Um, and Greg, where might that take place on a regular basis?
2: Well, there, there's constantly places you can do it. We do regular webinars and all sorts of esoteric topics like linseed oil and plywood and building papers and paint. And one of my favorites was Scagliola. I bet you've never heard of that one, Nick. Scagliola? Yeah, which is a I, full- I mar- went to high school with him. Yeah, yeah, it's a full yeah. marble technique that was fascinating oh, to learn about. I totally oh, keep oh, that on Scagliola. So um So <laughs> anyway, if people are interested in, you know, fascinating things they never heard of regarding historic buildings or things they heard of but always wondered how they worked, there we have regular online webinars. Uh, there's actually one coming up on concrete conservation, repair, and reinvestment training, which will be uh, in mid-April. I'm not sure when we're being broadcast, but uh, that may be too late for that, but registration on that's opening soon. But the big place that you are teeing me up for is our annual conference. Yes. Uh, we'll be in Seattle from October 9 to 14th. Registration opening soon uh there'll be uh last year we were in detroit and we had about 80 paper sessions i'm not sure the number we're going to land on this year we'll have field sessions to bring people out to look at historic sites and talk about them and some hands-on workshops as well so all that's in development now
0: so there's ways to digitally engage um it uh, from what i understand it doesn't involve watching the concrete dry but you can you can learn all about the concrete which is good and um and I, you know, I joke, but uh, actually, I just got an email last week asking about I need to learn more about concrete preservation, and I actually sent them over to APT. So there you go. So it is a huge resource, and you know, it fills a vacuum. Like there's not a lot of people talking about this issue of the science of buildings and how all these things come together. And um, obviously, there's online components to it, and then there's the in-person piece as well. Maybe you can. Um, sponsor cast to come out and cover it in person. Um, and Greg, do you have some other thoughts on on sort of like getting together with these sorts of issues and, and places where people can have these conversations?
2: Yeah, a couple of additional things people should know about. You know, our website, APTI.org, has a number of free resources to non-members that includes something called practice points, which are uh, a little bit parallel to the park service technology briefs uh, mm-hmm. on specific issues, but they're not particularly long. They're they're good sort of high level to medium level mm-hmm. on various topics. Um, we have our building technology heritage library, which is one of my favorites and others can't see, but as you can see, a great source for back, backgrounds for virtual meetings. Uh, but old catalogs, uh, of different technologies from terracotta to lighting to tiles to paint to lots and lots of old house plans. They're amazing resources for practitioners. Um, and I was going to also mention our chapters. Uh, and, and we have uh, chapters throughout the world. Um, you're in Maryland, we have a DC chapter, we have a Delaware Valley chapter that's not too far away. Um, Taryn, do you want to say anything about chapters or anything else?
1: Well, Nick asked about getting together and I wanted to highlight some of the other ways in which we do get together. Um, the, big, the big event is our annual conference course, but we do have uh, in-person and virtual workshops throughout the year. And we also have committees. We have 21 committees at APT, six of which are technical committees. And so these are the committees doing the bulk of the work to develop and advance the technology um, to preserve historic structures. So those committees include the Technical Committee on Modern Heritage, which is putting on the concrete repair seminar in a couple of weeks, the Technical Committee on Codes and Standards, the Preservation Engineering Technical Committee, um, because it requires a certain level of sensitivity when dealing with structural or mechanical aspects of the building to preserve it without destroying it. We have the Technical Committee on Sustainable Preservation which really deals with the intersection of sustainability and preservation. And I think we should talk more about that on the next point. Um, we have the technical committee on materials, which puts on monthly webinars that are currently free to anyone about the things that Greg mentioned earlier, the linseed oil, you know, the plaster, the paints. Um, so you can really nerd out there. And, um, Let's see, there's the six. Uh, the Technical Committee on Documentation. So this committee handles um, LIDAR scanning, laser scanning, all of the ways in which we document historic buildings. So this is where the, the technological development and the forefront development really happens.
0: Yeah, there are just like a ton of ways to get engaged and we're going to put links in the show notes here so people can click on it. They can join APT. They can go and hang out with their local chapter. I know I'm always getting things about cool stuff and linseed oil and all these different things that are happening in the uh, in the Delmarva. Um, and, um, and I, and I joke about this, but you know, really when it comes down to doing this work with these buildings, there's few other places where you can have these conversations. And if you have also just like a specific question about something, the chapters are a great place to kind of engage with that or find a, an expert who can help you in your region as well. Um, I guess maybe question kind of like, what are you guys working on next? Like where, where are you headed? I don't know if Taryn wants to take that one, like sort of the big things that are happening.
1: Yeah, one thing I'll mention coming back to um, an earlier topic is the intersection of sustainability and preservation, which is something that we in APT understand very well as an inherent um, you know, partnership and overlap. The most sustainable building, the greenest building, is the one that's already there. So when we're considering options between um, tearing down an existing building and building a new one that might have a great lead rating, versus um, preserving an existing one and looking at those two options, um, many times the the preservation will um, result in, you know, lower carbon footprint, uh, lower energy expenditure, etc. And so there are people outside of the preservation space who don't think of these things together, but it's what the work of our Technical Committee on Sustainable Preservation involves. And you know, right now, as an example, we're partnering with GBC Italia, which is the Italian Green Building Council equivalent of the U.S. GBC, the Green Building Council. Right now in the lead system, if you're going to reuse an existing building, I think you get two points out of, you know, this whole list of 100 and more. But GBC Italia has developed... Um, a protocol to really recognize the value of preserving a historic building, and to give more credit to reuse of all of those items. So we're working on helping them to internationalize this standard and bring it over into the US and beyond. So that's one place I think Greg can talk more about his experience with sustainability.
2: Yeah, another thing we're involved in that, Nick, you've, you've probably already talked about somewhere along the line, uh, is the
0: CARE tool, the carbon avoided retrofit estimator. I don't know if you talked to anyone about we that. We haven't had it on PreserveCast yet. It's definitely sort of um, something that we're working on, but you can, you can definitely whet people's appetite with it.
2: Yeah. So if people go to caretool.org, this is something that we and other organizations help support something our sustainable sustainability group is working on. Um, it really, you know, brings some numbers. So as Taryn mentioned, you know, the greenest building is the one that's already there, you know, building reuse is climate action, whichever tag phrase you want to use. We've been saying it in the field for a long time. Um, but we've had trouble sort of putting data to it. And this tool lets you put in some basic information about a building and demonstrates. Uh, that the embodied carbon in that building is significant. And it it does some calculations and plots and graphs to show that if you were to replace this building with a new building, even a net zero building, how long it would take to make up for all that lost embodied carbon, which is often 75 to 80 years. Um, And with improvements in um, building systems with existing buildings, there's some new studies that show that you may never make up the the loss of that existing building. so that is an area that you know we're actively working on. Um, as you know, Nick, you know one of the challenges is uh, you know within the field getting people to understand these things, and then there's the general public and outside the field. Um, you know we're seeing a growing awareness of the power embodied carbon and the value of existing buildings within the field. AIA is recognizing it more. Um, some of their numbers show that you know their members, AIA, the American Institute for Architects, for those who don't know. Um, uh, you know their billable hours are increasingly on you know reuse of existing buildings and modification of existing buildings. So within the design field, it's starting to be recognized. But it's the general public challenge that we need to work on. Um, I hate to slam anyone publicly, but I will. But if I hear another Anderson window ad saying that you should replace all your windows and it's going to save all the energy that you're, you're wasting
0: because your old building's old, I'm going to scream. Um, and, They're actually you know, the but, sponsor of today's episode. No, I'm just kidding. Well, uh, I'm just kidding. you know, there you go. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. You know, getting so, you know, but
2: but but as a preservation field, you know, we're collectively working on sort of better messaging. Um, it, The other thing I'll say I'm working on is that relatively new executive director I've been at APT a year is making us less of a hidden gem. Uh, when I go to talk to some of my co- former colleagues I worked with in Boston that are working with historic buildings every day, they don't necessarily know about APT, typically because they hire someone like Simpson, Comforts and Hager, and they hire SGH to do the work. And the people at SGH, like Taryn, Get all the information from APT, but we need more people involved in preservation to know that we are, you know, a critical resource that underlies the whole field.
0: Right. And I think there's I'll I'll admit my confusion on it is that I always thought APTI meant that it was just like an international thing. And it's not. It's, it's, it's one thing. It covers the United States, but it also covers other places. But when you hear APTI, it does not mean it's an international group. It, it, is, it is ours and, and others as well. Is that right?
1: Well, let me clarify that for you, Nick. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, and in fact, this is something we've been talking about at the board in recent years because there has been that confusion. So the name of the organization is the Association for Preservation Technology International And when the organization was founded between American and Canadian members, they chose the abbreviation as APT or APT International. Um, Nowadays, so it's the same thing. Nowadays, um, now that we have many chapters, we will use the APTI abbreviation to distinguish uh, chapters from the parent organization, which are all separate organizations affiliated with APT International. Or to emphasize the international nature of our work, because when we started, it was a joint American-Canadian organization. And now we have a variety of international chapters, um, including Latin American and Caribbean, Europe, and South Asia. Um, So we also have Australasia. So we've been all over the place for quite a long time. So APT and APTI are the same organization.
0: It's it's a good it's a good clarification. Well, as we kind of come to a clear a, a conclusion here, rather, um, we normally we've asked what you guys are working on next. We've talked about ways to engage. We've learned a little bit about the organization and about both about you. And now we ask. Greg knows this; he's been on before. We ask your favorite historic place or site. We asked Greg that before, so we can't ask him the same one. So maybe we'll say, "What was the most recent historic place? Not your house, but the most recent historic place that you visited purposefully." Oh, that's not fair. I prepared an answer because I don't remember what. Well, if you prepared an answer, by all means, I I don't mean to get in the way of it. People who know me well
2: know I hate the what is your favorite question.
0: Yeah, Um, that's why we ask me.
2: If people ask me what's my favorite pizza, I say, well, it depends. So I don't know what I told you last time. And if you ask me the question 10 times, I'll probably give you 10 different answers. So I love it today. My favorite historic place is the Boston Public Library built in 1895, McKim, Mead, and White. And part of the reason I mentioned it today is because it does, it does have a nerdy, esoteric, APT-related aspect, which is it is full of gorgeous Guastavino vaults. Um, and if you don't know about Guastavino, go to Ellis Island, uh, go to uh, many historic buildings, uh, go to the, the Michigan Central Station in Detroit being restored. Um, so the Boston Public Library, I can wax poetic, but I'll stop there. That's a great, great place,
0: Taryn.
1: I always have trouble with favorite questions because I have a lot of favorite things. But since I had this in advance, I thought about the top three kinds of historic places I like because historic places all the time. But first and foremost is any place that has Guastavino vaulting.
0: (laughs) We didn't plan that. No. We'll have to do a whole episode just on Guastavino and then Scagiola.
1: I think that we should, and we can we can connect you with the right person to talk about Guastavino. I bet. Uh, This is a a vaulting technique using very thin tiles in just a couple of layers to create a dome or a vault that has immense um, compression loading capacity. And they're beautiful. When you look at them from below, you see a very characteristic herringbone pattern. And so I went to the Boston Public Library with Greg for the first time last year, and he said, they have a room called the Guastavino room. And I was like, (gasps) and he said, let's go there now. So any place with Gloucester vaulting one of my favorite things to look at. Second favorite thing is cobblestone streets. I just love them. There aren't very many in DC where I live, but they're all over Philadelphia. They're all over plenty of places and I I love them. They're impractical these days, but I love them. There was one in Ithaca, New York, um, that has now been destroyed, but it was part of a project that I did in my graduate class. And the third is abandoned rail lines around Paris. any kind of abandoned rail lines really, but there is one in Paris called the Petite Ceinture that surrounds the city and they have been redeveloping parts of it as a park. Um, but some of it is still um, off limits. And those are the places I've gone in with friends in Paris to, to have a look at the railroad. There are actually um, secret entrances to the catacombs in some of the tunnels. And so we've gone down in there at night looking around wow. and it's, it's absolutely fascinating.
0: Well, I would expect no better answer from two preservation professionals, um, uh, who are are outstanding in their field, um, to, uh, to wrap up this episode. It's been fun talking with you guys, looking forward to hearing more about where APTI heads and also, um, keeping an eye out for all the information about your upcoming events. And we'll put links in the show notes to, um, all of this so people can can engage with apt and uh thanks so much for joining us today it's been fun having both of you with us thank
1: you been a pleasure we appreciate it
0: thanks for listening to preservecast to dig deeper into this episode's story head over to preservecast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing commenting and leaving a review follow along on instagram twitter and facebook at preservecast for even more preservecast is currently recorded in walkersville maryland and sponsored by the 1772 foundation and powered by preservation maryland thanks for listening and keep on preserving